If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12 today. We'll be reading through uh, chapters 12 and 13, uh, but also would like for you to find your place in Daniel chapter 7. That's going to be important. Uh, we'll cross-reference that later on in our conversation. Uh, before we get into God's Word, though, just to set the table for us, you may wonder, you may have an idea of what a conversation in the book of Revelation would lead to, but just to remind you that we are um, continuing a series called The Image of God. Uh, Imago Dei is just an ancient Latin way of saying that. Uh, we've been talking about what it means to be made in the image of God what it means to be remade or reborn into the image of God. Uh, we've spent the last couple of weeks, particularly in the book of Genesis, uh, and we've been looking for one specific thing or having one specific desire, if you will. Uh, we've spent the last couple of weeks seeking God's face. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we framed our conversation around that idea, a biblical concept for getting back in view of God, uh, getting back in line of him and in with his vision for us. Uh, and that's what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And what does that mean uh, for our lives um, as we follow after Christ? Uh, our goal of this series, uh, if you haven't been with us, it's pretty simple. We want to delight in God's design for us. We want to find our delight. We want to find uh, our peace and our joy and our purpose and fulfillment. We want to find our delight in God's design because God is our creator. God designed us after a very specific image, a very specific idea. So we want to walk in step with that as close as we can get to it. Uh, our first goal was to understand God's design, which is why we opened up to Genesis because of course it's the best place to start where everything began. Uh, and what we learned over the last couple of weeks in the book of Genesis, uh, well, we, we read about creation and right after creation, we read about the fall. So created in God's image, fallen in Adam's image or in Adam's sin. And what we followed after that was a clear trajectory of humanity moving away from God. Remember, they drifted east and we continue to drift away from God in our nature. Uh, baked into that snapshot of paradise given to us in Genesis 1 and 2 is a picture of God's design for men and women separate and together. And even in the fall, there's this promise that God will rescue, restore us to his design, to his image. And we looked into the, into the, into the New Testament and saw that in Christ, we find our restoration. So we understand that we were made in God's image. We fell from God's image. Christ brings us back. But we've been trying to find every detail about what it really means to be brought back, to walk in that image. Now, we established something pretty important. God's image isn't really about how we look, our appearance, or presentation. God's image speaks of our characteristics, our nature, uh, our propensity and possibility to walk in his footsteps and follow in his pathway. Uh, from Genesis 3 forward, we still bear God's image, but it's suppressed by Adam's image. I hope that makes sense. We still bear the thumbprint of God. We still bear the image of God, yet we are suppressed by Adam's sin. And because of that, our wills are bent towards sin. Our disposition is fallen and set at odds with God's glory, which is why we are intentionally seeking God's face. Because we, under, we, are understand, we understand, we are well aware that if we don't intentionally seek God's face, we're gonna keep drifting. That's just our nature. So it's consistent in God's word and God's call over us is that if we want to encounter God, if we want to walk with God, we've got to seek his face. We've got to turn our faces toward him, lest our sin take us farther away from him. Now, of course, when Jesus showed up, this is the, 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 the kind of the plan he showed us. And this is the pathway he showed us to enact God's redemption plan to rescue us. What was his message there in the beginning of the gospels? Repent and believe the kingdom of God is here, that the time is fulfilled. So you need to seek me, turn towards me, trust in me. So this was consistent to the Old Testament message of seeking God's face. Repent means to turn, turn away from sin and turn towards God. And what do you find when you turn towards God? Good news. That's what gospel means. We don't find dread or terror or grief or, or, or something that's a burden to us. We find good news. We find the kingdom of God, the doors of heaven, the opportunity to walk with God himself. It means that we should cast down anything and all things that are fueling and fostering that separation between us and God, which is, of course, sin, but all the things that sin produces within us. 
Our sinful nature does not cooperate with this. That's pretty obvious to most of us, but just in case you were wondering, why is this difficult? Our sinful nature resists this notion of repentance, of turning. But thankfully, our risen Savior revives us and enables this to be possible. God's word offers us page after page of practical truth that exposes our sin and emphasizes Jesus and his way. That's why we need to read God's word and fill our minds with his word every day because God's word is a direct conduit from God's mind to our mind. If you read something, you begin to fill your mind with that thing, right? It begins to influence you and, and begins to dictate how you, the steps that you take and the things that you do. God's word is a direct conduit from God's mind to ours. For the Holy Spirit to travel from page to person, he brings to life a desire to delight in God's design. That's the only hope that we have, church. If we are gonna get back to God's image, if we are gonna get back to God's plan for our lives, if we're gonna ever find our delight in his design, we must study, read, embrace, take in his word because through from page to person, the Holy Spirit brings to life in us a new desire that finds delight in God's design. And I'll give you an illustration that I think can help a lot. Sometimes I think, uh, I like to think of God's word similar to the camera application or the camera app on your smartphone. If you've got an iPhone or Android, you know what I'm talking about. That uh, if you have a, the app that you use, maybe not just your camera app, but through Instagram or whatever, social media, when you go to take pictures, uh, depending on which camera you use, because there's one on the front and there's one on the back, right, of any newer device, um, when you look through that phone or when you look through that camera, um, it's like holding a window and it can be like holding a mirror, a window to see the world through and a mirror to see yourself in. Sometimes God's word is either a window or sometimes it's both a window and a mirror. God's word is like holding up your camera and looking at the world through that lens. And because if you, if you understand, what, if you have a smartphone, when you take pictures, you can do things with that app and you can kind of change the picture, can't you? You can augment and you can filter and overlay the picture that you see. In God's word, as we look at our world through his word, as we hold up his word and we look at our world through how his word interprets it and filters it, we can kind of begin to augment and see the world as God sees the world. I hope you, maybe this helps, helps you out. On social media, you see pictures of things, people who add stickers and banners and filters to their pictures because the app allows them to do that. God's word shows us what our eyes see, plus it adds a layer of information and lens of interpretation. So we see the picture, but we can do things to the picture with your camera, right? And God's word adds things to the picture. It clarifies, it interprets, it adds information to the picture. And that's why it's important to see the world like God sees the world, not just with our own eyes, but with the lens of his word. Now, likewise, your phone has a selfie camera on it, which is like a mirror, right? Maybe you use it for a mirror, but if you use it to take pictures, the one thing that you probably are well aware of when you take a picture of your face and it's that close to your face, the imperfections and the things that you're not really happy about are glaring to you, right? Unless you just have a perfect complexion and perfect everything. And maybe if you're one of those, then, then God bless you. Most of us, we see everything and we're like, we well, I need to add a filter to this. Maybe I need to add some, you know, augment to this uh, to, to have, you know, the goofy things you see people put on their pictures, right? It cleans up the imperfections. It's kind of adds some fun to the image. And likewise, God's word, when we hold it up and we find things about ourselves, it's kind of like a mirror. It exposes and it explains and it can enhance us. So you understand that God's word is like a mirror and God's word is like a window. That same piece of glass, right? But in some ways it reflects back. In some ways it filters or it explains what we see. Now, as we seek God's face, our faces, our beings are confronted with truth and find grace. And this is in every book. This is in every page. Now, some books and some pages lend themselves to this more so than others. You look, read the gospels and wow, we're convicted, aren't we? Wow, this is what the world is going through and this is how God's word can fix it, right? Now, some books we just kind of skip over because we don't see them as playing a part in the mirror and the window uh, equation. But I promise you, every book, 
every page does this. One of the books that does this in a sobering and powerful way that we really never look at is the book of Revelation. The Revelation is an account by John, the apostle and disciple of Jesus, who wrote uh, this at the end of his life. He was the last living disciple in his day. He wrote the book around 90, 95 AD, so at the end of that first century. Um, Revelation is an account of a vision that God gave John towards the end of his life. And this is very important. The purpose of that revelation, it's a single revelation that he had different visions of, but it's a single revelation that God gave to a single man. This, the purpose of this book is to frame the new dual reality, emphasis on dual, this new dual reality that had just come upon the world. So what does that mean? I'll explain. The book of Revelation is a series of windows and mirrors. Remember what's a window? Seeing the world like God sees the world. What's a mirror? Seeing ourselves like God sees ourselves, confronting some things, clarifying some things, enhancing other things. So the book of Revelation is a series of windows and mirrors. Think of it like walking into an ancient castle tower that has windows all around the room. And it's as if John is going up to a different window in writing a different, uh, he, writing down those individual revelations that he gets from those windows that completes this single book. So it's a series of windows and mirrors that serve as reminders and guideposts. Reminders and guideposts, clarifying what we see, enhancing who we are. Reminders and guideposts for the church. Now this might make some people a little bit uncomfortable because we think revelation is something that's not for us, but it is for us. God's word is for us, right? Every page, including it. It's for the church as it followed in his generation and ours, as it followed the risen savior enduring a fallen world. So that's the dual reality. We have a risen savior, we're in a fallen world. Now the fallen world had been around for thousands of years, but just recently the world had received a savior. So that's why it's a new dual reality. Risen savior, fallen world. So this is big. Revelation considers a world in these two realities. It's still under man's sin, under sin's curse, but now, because you can choose to and you can follow Jesus, now it's also under God's son and Jesus' cure. Not everybody, of course, but those that believe the church is still under sin, but now also under God's son and Jesus' cure. Now, Revelation is often reduced down to a book about the far distant future with sensational images and metaphors, but it offers perhaps the most pertinent and one of the most helpful windows and mirrors for the church to hold up, to examine the world and self with and through. And, and, and I think the reason why we don't do this, the reason why that Satan has led the church away from reading the book of Revelation like this, and I believe that the devil has done that. The reason why the church doesn't read Revelation like this is because it's so convicting. Maybe more convicting than any other book of the Bible. We just don't read it because we just don't want to be that convicted. Now, that's not why you don't read it, but that's why somebody might not have led you to read it. Mark my words. So the reason we've opened the book of Revelation today is because we are seeking God's face and we're seeking to allow this text to speak to our hearts like every other text can. We're gonna hold up this text and allow it to be a mirror and a window because even this book is a mirror to us and a window to the world. Now, Revelation 12 and 13, what they particularly do is they show us a world under attack while also calling the church to action. Revelation 12 and 13 show us a world under attack and they call the people of God to action. These chapters are going to help connect the dots from Genesis to every generation that came afterwards John's in 90 AD, even ours in 2021 AD. They're going to help us understand the enemy's strategies since the beginning and help us identify the weapons of his warfare that he wages against God and God's people and God's creation. Sounds pretty fun, doesn't it? First thing though, there's three things you got to know about the book of Revelation. Revelation is an apocalyptic piece of literature. 
which is a genre in the ancient world that sought to explain things through allegories and sensational images. By sensational, I mean all the wild stuff that you read that you think, wow, that can't be literal. Wow, that's some crazy stuff. Dragons and beasts and locusts and all sorts of things, bowls and trumpets. Apocalyptic literature uses sensational images and allegories to explain something. The The word revelation means to reveal So to reveal something. Now, the Old Testament has books like this, not the entirety of those books, but certain sections of those books um, are under this category. The book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Daniel. Now, you may have heard those books referred to as something else, namely prophetic books. Now, again, prophecy isn't just about what has, what's in the future. Prophecy is about interpreting and present the present and understanding the unseen forces at work. Again, revelation means to reveal what you cannot see. Reveal, apocalypse means to reveal what is unseen. Prophetic is the idea of a voice coming to give clarity where it was otherwise absent. Now, there are some predictive elements in these books, of course, as there are in Revelation, but that's not their primary goal. They have a living purpose for their living audience. That means us. Number two, another thing to understand about Revelation is 90% of the information in Revelation is found elsewhere in the Bible. 90% of the information in Revelation, maybe more like 95, is found elsewhere. So it's repeated, recycled, and re-emphasized content from the Old Testament. The same images God gave the Old Testament prophets to understand their world, God gives John to understand his world. And likewise, John's version is a perpetual resource for the church to understand its world, any generation that it finds itself in. Now, the same images again. We see repeats of things that Israel went through. We see that we also go through, or John's generation went through. Number three, Combining those two things, Revelation is meant to serve as a confirmation to every age, including ours, that God began something in Genesis and he is continuing that work and he's going to conclude that work and there's something we can look forward to in the future of coming from him. He's going to enact his redemption plan. He's preparing his kingdom. Tragically, most of our time with Revelation has been trying to figure out if we can push it off to some distant group in the future and that it doesn't apply to us. Shame on us and shame on preachers that don't bring it to us now and push it off to somebody in the future because it's so important to us right now. God always intended the Revelation to be a reminder to every living generation that includes ours to show us what he is continuing, what he is seeking to conclude, and what we should look forward that's coming. Now, I, want, I know that's a lot, but remember, we're t- talking about this because there are, we are seeking God's face and we want to be fully restored to his image. We believe that Revelations 12 and 13 offers us a sobering view of our world, a world under attack, a world where even us may be under the influence of that enemy. And God calls us to action to overcome the enemy. So under attack, under the influence, call to overcome. This, uh, uh, of, of course, God will fully restore the world one day. There is a kingdom that is coming. And while we wait, we're called to repent and believe the gospel, the good news. So I want to briefly, I want us to read through Genesis or Revelation 12, which is going to be abstract and obscure, but with all these things on our minds, the images are meant to reveal something to us. Uh, this isn't new. It's just repeating what God's already shown his people. The Old Testament Israel went through this, so it's something that we also will go through. And it's a part of God's consummation plan to bring total restoration. So if we have all that, and it's okay if you don't have it all, we'll repeat some stuff. With all that in mind, I want you to listen to Revelations 12. It's, it's not that long. This is a wild ride. But I promise you, if we kind of put the pieces together, we'll understand that Revelations 12 is a very clear, after all, a very clear summary of what the world has already went through and what we are going through right now. So Revelations 12 Verse one, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a garland of 12 stars. 
Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her 1,260 days. And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragons, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, and the serpent of old, called the devil, Satan, who deceived the whole world, was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. I heard a loud voice from heaven. Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice all heavens and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman, who had, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Where she is nourished for a time and a time and a half of a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. The dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now that is a, it makes your eyes a little wider when you read that. I think it's really cool. I think it's really awesome. It inspires a lot of our fiction, a lot of our sensational uh, literature in our world. But this, of course, is an allegory of something that actually happened, something that took place and continues in some ways to take place. So let me summarize it for you, if I can. In the beginning, God made humanity in his image. The serpent The dragon tempted them and gloated over them and enslaved them. Humanity drifted farther and farther away from God and God sent his son to reverse Adam's curse. The church was born through his resurrection and is now a light in a dark world on mission to reflect the glory of God, denounce sin and wait for his kingdom to come. Now, That may seem a little bit of a stretch to pull from that text, but I promise you this imagery of a woman giving birth to a child, the nation of Israel giving birth to Jesus, the woman with 12 stars around her garland, the picture of Israel giving birth to a child who would go on to save the world. And then there's another woman there at the end of the chapter, a woman being persecuted, a picture of the church of Jesus Christ who finds refuge in a world that has no place for it. Of course, this dragon, the serpent who fell from heaven, once an angel, now an imp, a demon from hell, trying to deceive God's people, trying to harm God's people, trying to enslave God's people and keep them from getting back to him, keep them from seeing his kingdom come. Now, we go into Revelation 13 and things get a little more interesting. Remember, we're looking into a mirror and a window of our world of our, for ourselves and of those around us. If we were to summarize Revelations 13 in one sentence, I think the best way to do so would be like this. It's a picture of our world fully clutched in the enemy's grasp as tightly as he can grasp it. What he began to do in Revelations 12, what it says at the end of that chapter, the dragon enlarged or was enraged, went out to make war against this woman and all those that would come through her, those that keep the commandments of God, those that have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the church, right? I know the rest of Revelation 12 might be a little bit foggy, but I mean, I think we can agree that the end of it there in verse 17, that is the church under attack by the dragon, the enemy, the serpent. 
So we go into Revelation 13, we see that he has the earth in his clutches. He has the world in his grasp. And we see his plan lived out to its fullest extent in this next chapter. Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And his horns, ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. Now you can reference chapter 12 where it says the dragon had so many heads and so many horns. And here this beast has similar features. So you can see there's a connection there. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like a bear and his mouth was like a lion. Highlight that because that's important. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. His deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him or stop him? Now again, this is an allegory. Do I think people are actually worshiping the dragon, worshiping the beast? I think the enemy is more clever than that. To get people's attention, but we'll get to that in a minute. Now, I know what everybody's wondering. Is not this some picture of a definite future evil empire? I don't believe this is meant to point to a specific evil empire of the future. It may reference that, but that's not all that it points to. Let me make this very clear. I believe this is meant to point to every kingdom of every generation being influenced and leveraged by the dragon to counter, compete for, and capture God's people's attention, affection, and adoration. If you don't get anything else out of this, please get that last part. That it's a picture of every kingdom of every generation influenced and leveraged by the dragon, by the serpent, by the enemy to counter, compete for, and capture God's people's affection, attention, and adoration. God gave this vision to John as they were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. His generation believed, and rightly so, that this book was written to them about their struggle and their eventual victory over Rome. And they were right in believing that. Yet they all died before the kingdom that's promised at the end of this book came. They died and there was no kingdom. And another generation rose up and they went through their own battle with Rome and eventually other kingdoms that came after Rome. And they went through battles and they came out victorious, but they died and a new kingdom came. Therefore, this book has been written to every generation that would, that would come after John's. Will there be a final generation? Absolutely. Eventually one day, but again, this revelation has multiple angles. It's written to generations past, present, and future as well. What's relevant for us is what does it say to our generation? Every page of God's word has something to say to us about us, not just about tomorrow, God's word is better than that. It's a window and mirror for today. And shame on me if I tell you, oh, don't worry about that. That's for a hundred years from now. I love you too much to tell you that. Believe me, John's generation was dying on the vine. Do you think God sent them a book that meant nothing to them? No. And God did not send you a book that means nothing to you. He loves you too much. And his word is better than that. To show you that I believe this approach is biblical, we first need to understand that Revelation 13 is pretty much a carbon copy of Daniel's visions. You can read Daniel 2 on your own, but I would like for you to turn with me, if you will, to Daniel 7. And I want to show you that some of the things that John saw are exactly the same things that Daniel saw. And we can understand that Daniel's vision, Daniel's vision a little better because it was interpreted for him. So keep your place there in Revelations. Look back at Daniel 7 with me, if you will. Daniel 7, verse 1 through 6, you'll find this familiar. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in a my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And out of the sea, four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. And what does he see? One was like a lion, one was like an eagle, one was like a bear. Verse 4, it says that I saw like a lion had eagle's wings and I watched till its wings were plucked off. 
And I, it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. Suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, and it was raised on one side and three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus, and they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. And I looked and there was another, a leopard, which held on its back four wings like a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. So this clearly, uh, Daniel, in Daniel's day, Daniel was being, his, the, the nations were being ruled by Babylon and Persia. Now, the book interprets this for us. The first beast, the lion, is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the empire of Babylon. Now, we can go into detail about that, but if you will take my word for that, the first beast is the nation of Babylon. The second beast is the nation of Persia. The third beast is the nation of Greece. These are all contemporary empires of Daniel's day that took their turns ruling the earth in that day and age. Babylon, Persia, then Greece. But there's more, verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, the little one coming up from them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out of the roots and there in this horn were, like, were eyes like the eyes of a man, mouth speaking pompous words. Now, down to verse 19, 1921. Then I wished to know the truth about this fourth beast, which was different from the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron, nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. Ten horns that were on its head, the other horn which came before the... Which became before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes, a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints. Now, I know that's a little bit confusing, but I want you to look at verse 21. It was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. So the end game of this is there is a, a kingdom coming that would make war against the saints of God. Now, we believe that Daniel saw a vision, Daniel, this fourth beast, that the empire that would come after Greece was the empire of Rome. That Daniel, in this text, sees a vision of the Roman empire that ruled in the New Testament age that, again, made war against the saints of God. And it's from this Roman empire, the rest of the world would find its, uh, that, it, that the rest of the world would um, kind of come into being. And it's really from the Roman empire that the modern world was established. But there's something more important here. The beast was never really meant to only be understood as Rome's, but actually as the enemies, as Satan's. As he was establishing his operative vessel to combat the church which would be building God's kingdom. The church that would be persecuted in the New Testament and would remain under persecution in the future. Satan would use whatever cipher available to enact his attack on the people of God and the church of God as first established in a world ruled by Rome, but has since long outlived Rome. And again, the church faces a battle in every generation. Now, again, I want to remind you back in Revelation 13, what does it tell us there? That the beast had a mortal wound and it came back. Ever since the Roman Empire, there has been some evil force that has ruled this world and has leveraged the power of the dragon in opposition of the people of God. Think about this. In just the last hundred years, no sooner were the Nazis defeated in what was around the corner, the threat of communism, the threat of totalitarian dictatorships that it sparked the Cold War. No sooner than that was put out, what happened? The global terrorist threat emerged. My point is, on and on and on it goes. The beast continues to wreak havoc against the world that God is trying to restore and redeem and bring his people out from. That's the point of this. Over and over and over again, the beast seems to be defeated. It's like whack-a-mole. You hit this hole and it comes out the other hole and on and on and on and on it goes. The beast cannot, it seems, be defeated. But Daniel 7.22 says, until... The ancient of days came and judgment was made in favor of the saint of the most high. The time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. But guess what? 
We're still living between verse 21 and 22, aren't we? The Roman Empire may have went away a long time ago, but continually something has risen to fill that void. And the saints of God continue to be on earth in a world that is against them, influenced and leveraged by the dragon. And what is his goal? To counter, compete for, and capture your affection, attention, and adoration. And he doesn't always use a sword. He doesn't always use violence. Don't get me wrong. The reason we're looking at this text and in Revelation 13 is we see our current world, not just one that's in the past, not just one that's in our future. We can see our current world, maybe our current nation. And I would have said that six months ago, five years ago, in whatever party was in control. Let me be clear. The beast is every manifestation of evil in all kingdoms throughout history. John's beast is this amalgamation of Babylon, Persia, and Greece, every empire, past, present, and future. John's beast is a demonic governing authority that seeks to counter, compete for, and capture your attention, your affection, and your adoration. Look at how John describes his generation. People worship this dragon, this beast, not a literal picture of people worshiping the devil or its leader, but it speaks of the allegiance that he will win. Quick aside, how did Jesus tell us we can trace where our worship is? By who's bowing at what altar? No, what did Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart is. Jesus said, I don't look at people's worship. I don't determine their worship by where they, work, where they bow, what altar they visit. I determine your worship by where you put your treasure, what you value the most, what you live for. Remember the woman at the well? Oh, I know that y'all worship here and we worship there. And he said, no, 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 no. God is spirit and he determines who worships based on spirit. I see your heart. So this is not a picture of people literally bowing at the altar of a dragon or a beast. This is a picture of a world that has put its faith and put its treasure in all the wrong places. Makes it a little bit too close to home there, doesn't it? God is calling his people to persevere, to rise above, to overcome this. Church, is this not a window of our current world? Everyone, we're tribal, we're on our own sides, we're attacking each other. We've abandoned faith and our values for the sake of the beast. I'm not taking a certain side. I'm talking about every side. Left, right, center, economically, politically, the enemy's goal is to use the powers of this world to take your attention off of God's spirit, your affection away from Jesus, and your adoration away from God Almighty so that you might trust in and treasure this world more than God. And he's done a good job at that in our generation, hasn't he? This text clearly says the beast's goal is to conquer us. The beast will conquer in many ways. But does that mean we lose? Does that mean we have reasons to despair? Didn't the beast conquer Jesus? And he didn't stay dead, did he? Back in Revelation 13, look at verse number 7. It was granted to him to make war with the saints to overcome them. The authority was given him over every tribe, every tongue, every nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There's a distinction between those that are in the church and those that aren't. John says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear this. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints who are not overcome by the enemy. And even if it costs them their lives, they continue to endure for the glory of God because their faith is not in this world and their treasure is not in this world. It's in God. Here's why this is important to our generation. There is a temptation to marry our faith to flesh and blood institutions of man, to the state, to the powers that may be. There are versions of Christianity that have followed many different pathways of this world in order to maintain prosperity, power, influence, relevancy, whatever the allure may be. I believe John could see that transition of Christianity, nothing more than the pagan religions of his day. Look at verse 11 through 15. 
Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even make fire comes down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to breathe breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Let me translate that for you. To make your life near impossible to live if you don't bow to the beast. Now, other places in Revelation, this second beast is referred to as the false prophet. Now, let me, again, paint a picture for you. The unholy trinity of dragon, beast, and false prophet has been present in every generation. Establishing institutions to enthrall and chant and enslave us so that we might worship its image. The image of the beast. Don't you see what this is? This is a mirror of our sinful, fallen nature, the image of fallen man, glorified by this world to be something that we should not be concerned about. We should not be feel repentant about, but we should be proud of and we should defend. What the enemy has done, he dresses it up, he props it up, he glamorizes it, he modernizes it with every passing generation to enthrall us and enchant us with its promises of prosperity, power, pleasures, and play. In the ancient world, every empire had idols and carved images that captured the spirit of their kingdom, the goals, the ideas, the pride, the pleasures. The people were spellbound by these idols and they bowed to these idols so that they might arrive at their destiny in their true delight. Don't you see what the enemy has done in our world? What he does every day? Whether it's power, prosperity, pleasure through social media, news media, Republicans, Democrats, economics of every side, mine versus them, me versus them, mine versus theirs. Don't you realize the real battle is heaven against earth? Don't you realize the real battle is the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God? Don't you see how we've been enslaved by the enemy? We've all bowed to the image of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet in our own ways. We've all given ourselves over to the image of the beast. Fueled by its breath, we chase after broken dreams set in motion by broken people. And for what? More brokenness. We are pulled and controlled by addictions, anxieties, and allegiances to all the wrong things. We take cues from all the wrong places. We obey appetites that outright oppose the things of God. Beware of any institution or any nation. Powers that no longer reside under God will seek to play God. Every nation, our nation, our world goes from humane to bestial, godly to demonic. And I know this might rub some the wrong way, but I love you too much not to lie to, I love you too much to lie to you. The things that we align closely to may be right to a certain point, but past that point, they all serve the beast. Unless they are sanctioned by and serve only the lamb, they ultimately bow to the dragon. The things this world gets our attention with and puts its hooks in us with that we bow and give allegiance to, they may be right, but past that point, they serve the beast. They just do. This beast of Revelation 13 has been alive and well in our world for 2,000 years, capturing loyalties and diverting our worship from God. And here's what's so alarming that this text reveals. The enemy mimics Christ. His, word, his words, are set, they sound right. From politicians to pop culture, be careful what you buy into because Satan is subtle. He's incredibly patient. He whispers that you put your hope in human institutions. He encourages compromise between church and culture. He tempts us to trust in uncertain riches and fleeting things. Attempting to tear down the image of God to block us from true restoration in order to keep us in total reprobation. That is his goal. And he's pretty good at accomplishing it, isn't he? 
Now, one last thing. Look at verse 16 through 18. He causes us both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is the wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, again, I think that the dragon isn't literal. The beast isn't literal. They're symbolic. So the mark two is symbolic. This may be something literal in the future, but I'm talking about right now. This isn't a shot. This isn't a chip. People that peddle those lies usually have a number at the bottom of the screen wanting your money. This isn't what that is. Number one, Satan is more deceptive than that. Remember the serpent in Genesis 3 didn't outright say, hey, you want to sin. He tempted them with something that they thought was right. Number two, his goal is to keep us in his image, to mark us, define us by his image, prevent our restoration to God's, keep us in our fallen state. Number, the number there, the number of this mark, 666, it says it's the number of man. Now in the Bible, seven is the complete number. Seven is God's number. Seven is perfection. This number is one numerical short in all three places. You know what that means? You know, six has a lot in common with seven. Six things in common, actually but it's missing that one final ingredient that it really needs. Satan wants to keep us right there, deceiving ourselves with empty vessels of hope, remaining under his deadly influence. If he wins our devotion, if he wins our praise, he keeps our soul. That's been his goal since Genesis 3, since he smiled at as Adam and Eve fell away. What does it mean by heads and fore- hands and foreheads? I think I got a hunch. Our face bears the image of God. Our hands bears the thumbprints of God. These are two reminders of who God wants us to be, of who Satan wants to keep us from being, from what our minds are on to what our hands are doing. In the Old Testament, there was a similar concept. The Jewish people were given this command. Lay up these words of mine in your heart and soul, bind them on your hand and put them between your eyes. A spiritual concept of committing to memory and practice. Memory, practice. The Jews took this literally. They created these things called phylacteries that they would wrap around their heads and their their hands. The idea was that they would take God's word and God's ways and immerse themselves into them, embrace them ideologically, and demonstrate them practically. So what must we do? to rid ourselves of this image of the beast and fully be restored to the image of God. First and foremost, we must repent because this world has made it its goal to trap us and keep us in this image. But Christ has remade us in his and is calling us to stand out in his. In a world made after and marked by the beast and by the dragon, may we represent the lamb. God is calling us to faithful endurance, radical devotion, and passionate service. Just to be clear, I know this lands differently with everyone. My goal as a pastor, my mandate as a pastor, and the goal of the local church is to wire your heart to one king, one kingdom, one cause, one mission, and one faith. That's what I am called to do. That's it. Do I believe that requires detaching from this world's institutions? If they're after your affections, your attention and allegiance and adoration? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. When John's generation read this about the beast and the false prophet, they lived it out in Romans persecution and attempted to ensnare them with lesser options. Those that refuse to take that mark live that way in Romans, in the Roman empire, they lost their lives, literally. In our generation, in our country, our lives are not physically at stake, not at this point in time. In 50 countries or more, there is documented evidence of daily persecution towards those that count the cost to follow Jesus. In North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, India, Iraq, Syria, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Maldives, Egypt, China, Myanmar, Vietnam, the Congo, and many more. Christians are killed every single day. 
In Africa, Christian women and children are targeted for sex trafficking. In the Middle East, Christian women and children are targeted for sexual violence. In Asia, Christians are arrested and jailed and churches are set on fire and destroyed while people are in them. Yet do you want to know what's most striking? It's in those 50 countries where the church is growing while in ours, it's shrinking. You know why? Because real Christianity that doesn't compromise is contagious because the contrast of its hope and the false hope is clear and compels people to believe even if it costs everything. Church, this passage is a wake-up call to us, to America, to comfortable and paranoid Christians that want so badly our kingdom and God's kingdom to walk hand in hand, but that'll never be the case. Choosing God as our King, Jesus as our Savior, the Holy Spirit as our guide is not popular, it's not easy, it's not comfortable, it means salvation. It means being restored to the image of God, being rescued from the image of the beast. Being filled with the breath of God, emptied of the breath of the beast. In Genesis, man fell and set out east. They settled in a land called Babel and built that city for their own glory. From Babel, they were scattered, but the spirit of that movement lived on. Man built all sorts of empires. But Revelation says, at their core, they're still just Babel with different skin. Powered by the dragon, they're still the same beast. Offering false hope, trying to destroy the people of the lamb. Babel represents the image of the beast concerned over power and prosperity, pleasure and play for which many are willing to give up their soul to gain. If you read the rest of of Revelation 14 through 19, it's a story of Babylon the great falling. She will fall. And with her, the dragon, the beast and the false prophet, all that bought into the lies and deception will fall too. So the question is, What about us? Where is our faith? Where is our attention? Where is our affection? And where is our adoration? Do we bear the image of Christ? Or do we bear the image of the beast? Whose breath fuels and flows through our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Which is it? It's revealed by the devotion of our hearts, the direction of our hands, and where we delight. The call over us is that we must repent, trust in Jesus who gives us what this world cannot give us and what it only takes. Joy, peace, salvation. He puts our eyes on what matters most, love, purity, and faithfulness. He will raise us up to his kingdom where it matters most. But only if in him we have put our faith and in his image, our lives have been restored. Over the last month, we've sought God's face. He set in front of us this window and this mirror. Through it, we see our world, we see ourselves. And we hear him calling us to him. By faith, we can experience his, him remaking us in his image. By faith, we can escape the beast and find a new kingdom on the horizon. Would you join me in seeking God's face?